Smith, if you haven't met, I'm a church planning pastor with Park, and uh, my family and I uh, moved here almost a year ago uh, to like June, I don't know, 21st or something. We're getting there. We're close. Uh, a year ago to plant a uh, new Park Church in the great neighborhood of Uptown. So um, if you don't know anything about Uptown, it's a great neighborhood. <laughs> um, in fact, I was just thinking about this earlier. Uh, I would encourage some of y'all, if you haven't been down to Uptown for a bit, to uh, take the train or the bus or drive or bike down there. It's just, just a little south. Um, and walk around the neighborhood for a bit and look around, and open your eyes and pray. Say, God, show me what you see here in Uptown. It's such a eclectic, beautiful, diverse, broken neighborhood that needs the gospel, which is why we're going to Uptown, uh, to plant the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I just want to encourage you to do that as we are in this planting process. We've really just built a foundation year one here, uh, getting to know people, getting our family oriented here, uh, praying over the neighborhood a lot, walking it, started a group there, studied the culture. And here in year two, we're really like moving forward with this church plant. And we are inviting people to join this church plant, to consider, to pray about it, to say, hey, God, there is people there that don't know the good news of Jesus. What would it look like for me to go and be a sent one, right? Here am I, send me type stuff. And um, just really want to encourage you to, to consider that, um, to, to, be, to pray and say, God, you want me out of my comfort zone for a season, to go help plant something for the good of other people. And um, we actually have a 24-7 space that we're about ready to have this coming year. In fact, July, we should have the keys to that space. So pray for that to go through. Um, it's a big deal, right? We're going to use that space. It's a storefront right on North Broadway. Uh, to do all kinds of things. It's going to be a ministry hub. We're going to gather there. We're going to um, serve our community and our neighborhood there. It's going to have wide open doors a lot of the time to invite people in. Um, and we would love to have you come check that space out when we get that open. Um, as we gather, we do some trainings there, some um, informational meetups. Um, but God is moving and we're going to move with him. And we pray. And so pray for us. Consider joining us. Um, it's a big task, but we have a big God. And we have the people of God. So let's do this together. Amen? Amen. Well, today uh, we're going to be in our series that we just started last week. Our summer series called Great Stories. Um, and today we're going to be, again, way back near the beginning of the scriptures. And we're going to look at the life of Moses a bit. Look at a story from Moses. And Moses, you likely know who he is, but if you don't, he's one of the most significant human beings to ever live. Right? He's a... Uh, revered by many world religions currently. He's revered by Islam, Judaism, Christianity. And his story, if you know a story, is one that's filled with a lot of devastation and then some inspiration and then ultimately redemption. So before we get into today's text, let me just give you a, a very brief backstory into Moses' life. Uh, Moses was born somewhere around 3,400 years ago. And he, again, is still to this day an important figure in the history of humanity, right? Not many people are talked about or remembered even a generation after their death. But here Moses, 3,400 years after his death, is still talked about and revered. He is seen as so important that even Hollywood movies have made some movies about him, right? World leaders are inspired by his leadership. And again, world religions have put him on their Mount Rushmore. And perhaps the most telling of Moses' legacy is that Jesus himself often references Moses. I mentioned that uh, 
that Moses' life was filled with devastation. And it was. In fact, he was what we call a miracle birth. A miracle birth. Moses was born during the time that his people, the Israelites, were enslaved by the Egyptians. So immediately Moses is born into slavery. Born into it. And even more, the Egyptian ruler who was called the Pharaoh saw that the people of Israel were growing and increasing in number. And out of fear that the slaves would revolt and join Egypt's enemies, the Pharaoh came up with this plan to kill all the newborn males of the Israelites. Emphasize. So, so Moses was not just born into literal slavery. He was also born into a system that wanted him dead as he breathed his first breath. And yet, God had a plan for Moses. Amen? God had a plan for Moses, and God delivered Moses out of the hand of those who would take his life. And God placed Moses, get this, into the very family of the Pharaoh who tried to kill him. I mean, Moses becomes the great, or the grandson, the adopted grandson of the Pharaoh. And then God would eventually call Moses to then lead the people of Israel out of slavery right into the home, right from the home of the one who enslaved them. Man. So that's a, a, a brief backstory. And today we pick up the story in the desert, okay? We're in the desert. This is where the Israelites found themselves after God used Moses to miraculously deliver the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. We find them in our story today freed. They're free. They're no longer enslaved and they're on this journey toward the promised land that God had was preparing for them. And we find them in a bit of a conundrum. A bit of a conundrum. Let me read the text again to, to put it before us again, just to set it before us again. Again, Numbers 21, 4 through 9. From Mount Hor, the people of Israel set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people of Israel became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food that you did give to us. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when they see it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, they will look at the bronze serpent and live. Let me pray and we'll jump in. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for your church. Thanks for Jesus. God, point us to Jesus today. Point us to Jesus today. Do your work. Help me to boldly and clearly declare the word of God as I ought to. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, yeah, so we find the Israelites here, again, in today's text, we find them free. They're freed from slavery. They're on their journey to a land that God had promised for them. And that feeling of freedom, all right, that feeling of freedom they first felt at the very beginning when they were freed, when they left Egypt, that first feeling of freedom, that celebration like, thank God we've been delivered. He heard us. We've been set free. That celebration, that wonder of what God did for them, that gratefulness, 
Listen, it's, it's long gone right now in the text. Right? They are tired of the waiting. They are tired of the journey. They are tired of the dust of the desert. They're tired of the weather and the desert. They're tired of one another. <laughs> and so what they do is they start complaining. They start complaining. And listen, we've all been here, right? We've all been here. Right? Sometimes the excitement of the new wears off and we want something more. Anybody ever feel that? You get your new gadget, so excited. Next thing you know, it wears off. And you're like, all right, what's next? What's next? <laughs> Sometimes we take for granted what we've been given, right? Or, or the pressure and the hardships of, of life begins to take its toll on us. Or we don't seem to have the same fervor. I don't know if anybody's ever felt this before, but we don't seem to have the same fervor we once did when Jesus freed us, right? And what we do is we, we start complaining. <laughs> we start complaining and we lose the awe that we once had when we were first freed. This is what's happening to the Israelites in the text today. They went from praying to God in Egypt and begging him to, to deliver them from enslavement to being set free from Egypt. They got what they wanted, right? To now complaining to God and to Moses about their new reality. Maybe it was better in Egypt. <laughs> Man, this is the grass is always greener on the other side stuff of life, Amen. Again, look at verses 4 and 5. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food or water, and we loathe this worthless food. When I first read this, when I was preparing for the sermon, the first thing that came to my mind when I read this part, 4, four and 5, was the family road trip. <laughs> family road trip. I mean, it sounds like your typical family road trip, doesn't it? This, the Israelite family here is really no different than our families. I don't know if you've ever planned a trip or a vacation for your kids. <laughs> and you tell them, right, like, this is where we're going to go. And they, they get all giddy, get all excited. They, they actually pack their bags days before the trip. They're so excited to go on this journey. And they can't wait for the morning that, that we leave. And they wake up all happy, like unusually, almost annoyingly happy really early the morning of, Right? Even our older kids do this. You know, they're like ready to go. Teens don't usually like to wake up early, but on a trip that's planned for them, they're ready to go. <laughs> and then an hour or so into the trip, <laughs> what well, usually happens, parents? You know the drill. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Are we there yet? They get impatient. They get impatient on the way to the destination. How much longer? Mom, you're driving too slow. <laughs> Dad, you're driving too recklessly. Like, whatever it is, they start complaining. And then, after they start complaining a little bit, what happens next is the fighting happens, right? All right again, we got six kids. We get the, you know, the, the three-row three minivan. <laughs> so they're in there together, and they start speaking against one another. They start speaking against us. Put the window up. You know, I got to call my girls. I love my girls. They're teenage girls. We got little girls. So we got four girls. And the teenage girls always sit in the back row, all the way in the back. And what will happen is the younger girls will put the windows down, the seat before them, the row before them. And teenage girls care about their hair, you know. And it's okay. They care about their hair. And the wind will start blowing back. And it's like, put the window up. And there's this fighting begins to happen on the way to the journey. 
And then um, we get the I'm car sick moments. I don't know what happened to this generation. I feel like oh, we were growing up. We, we didn't fly anywhere. We didn't have the money to fly anywhere. So we drove everywhere with my parents. And I don't remember ever complaining about being car sick. Um, we didn't wear seatbelts, you know. We were like tossing all over the back somewhere. <laughs> and uh, they're always car sick. I'm car sick. Give me the, the ginger chewing gum to help my nausea. And start complaining and upset about my driving. And um, <laughs> rightfully so. And then it's like, uh, when, we were dry, when we were growing up, my family and I, we didn't, again, we didn't have a lot of money, so we never stopped at the fast food joint on the way to our destination. So what mom and dad would do is they'd, they'd pack these sandwiches uh, that were like butter and, uh, I don't know, cheese and smash them together and put them in like a little bag, like a grocery shopping bag. And that was our meal, right? So when we're like, oh, I'm hungry, how much further? Sandwiches are in the baggie, okay? Grab your sandwich that we made and like... <laughs> I think Esther and I tried that once. I think we tried that once when we made the sandwiches. But it's always like, can we stop at Wendy's or McDonald's, right? We loathe this worthless food y'all made for us. <laughs> right? And all the while, mom and dad are, are shelling out a fortune, right? To take this group of complainers <laughs> on a vacation that's centered on their enjoyment and their good. Right? So what started as excitement. It started as excitement and gratefulness. You're the best parents ever. <laughs> All of a sudden feels like the worst day ever. And uh, maybe that analogy that's true for us, and maybe for some of you, helps give us some grace. Helps give us some grace for the Israelites in today's story. Amen? Because what's wild about this statement from the Israelites in verses 4 and 5 is that God had not only rescued them from enslavement, but he had also performed for them miracle after miracle on their journey thus far. When they were hungry, he brought food down from heaven called manna. When they were thirsty, he brought water out of a rock. When they were trapped by the Egyptian army, he split the Red Sea so they could have a way of escape. God had rescued them and kept them and protected them and provided for them, and yet they still complained and questioned God's goodness and Moses' leadership here. And listen, this wasn't the first time they complained, by the way. In fact, this was the 14th occasion that we find the Israelites complaining on some level against God and Moses in the Exodus narrative. And after about the fifth time that they complain, God begins to discipline them. At first, God relents and he provides for them. But then as they continue to question God and throw Moses underneath the bus, God begins to discipline them and they have consequences for their disobedience and their idolatry and their complaining. In today's text, we find God again bringing discipline for their sin. But in this case, we also see that he provides a solution to their problem. A solution to their problem. And listen, listen, hear me out. Their problem isn't that they need more food or water, okay? Just to be clear, that's not really their problem. That's what they're saying it is. But God's been providing that the whole way. Their problem, listen, was their sin nature. They couldn't stop sinning. No matter how often God came through and provided for them, they couldn't stop. They couldn't turn it off. They couldn't stop complaining they couldn't stop blaming God and Moses. They couldn't stop worshiping other things that weren't God. They were stuck 
Listen, the Israelites were stuck in a perpetual place of sin. And listen, maybe that's where you find yourself today. Stuck. Maybe you're stuck. Maybe you can't stop complaining when things don't go exactly your way, like me. (laughs) Maybe you blame others when life gets hard. Maybe you forget God's goodness in your life and you tend to just kind of focus on the negative around you. Maybe you've lost a heart of gratitude and awe toward God. Or perhaps you can't stop falling into temptation or that addiction. You just can't stop or get out of it. Or perhaps you have placed something else above God and worshipped it like an idol. Maybe the words of your mouth are abusive and degrading toward others. Maybe you have a divisive spirit within you. Listen, whatever it is, whatever it is, my guess is that you, like me, relate to the Israelites here. We are stuck in a pattern of complaining and sin despite God's movement toward us and his goodness around us. Isn't this true of us? Or is it just me, y'all? Isn't this true of us? Why can each of us, why can each of us point to a pattern of sin in our lives that seems to keep repeating itself? Here's why. It's because we all have the same disease. We've all got the same disease. We have the same disease as the Israelites and every other human to ever exist. As Tim Keller said, the nature of sin, the nature of sin is that it makes us feel that nothing is ever good enough. And this is why complaining comes so easy to us. Right? Even when we are experiencing good, even in the most comfortable society to ever exist on this side of the Garden of Eden, which is our current moment right now, the most comfortable society to ever exist on this side of the Garden of Eden, we still look to God and say, this isn't good enough. No, this ain't good enough. You're not good enough, God. I want something more. I mean, consider Adam and Eve for a moment with me. They lived in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> they were surrounded by perfect beauty and peace, right? Something you and I have never experienced. Perfect beauty and peace. There was no brokenness. There was no sin. There was no bad food. <laughs> there was no bad weather. There was no bad line or long lines. I mean, no death. Nothing bad existed there. And yet they somehow still found a way to be dissatisfied with their state in the Garden of Eden. Nothing was good enough. So that's where we find ourselves. And that's where the Israelites find themselves in the text. This is why they could be rescued and experience miracle after miracle and still complain and sin and worship other things other than God. Listen, hear me out. Sin is the problem underneath all of our problems. Sin is the problem underneath every problem you and I have. It's a disease in us. All right, so that's the problem. Now, what happens next in the text? Look at verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Now, at first reading, again, I confess that this sounds a bit extreme to me. (laughs) This, like, felt like... Like, like one of those moments, I don't know if you've seen like Will Ferrell's like little meme or whatever you call it, like, well, that escalated quickly because that's what this feels like. 
like, they complained and now they're dying in the, in the desert as a result. <laughs> but listen, we must remind ourselves of two things here, okay? Number one, again, there's been a sinful consistency by the Israelites. Again, this is the 14th time that Israel has chosen to go down this path. They have made a golden calf and worshipped it before this. They have tried to come up with a plan to remove Moses at one point before this. And they have complained to God and to Moses and blamed God and blamed Moses over and over again. And God is, at this point, kind of over it. And so he, what he does is he draws a hard line and he brings discipline. He brings this death to the desert. Because, listen, when, when you and I sin, we bear the fruit of sin and we bear the penalty of sin. In other words, when we live lives of complaining and divisiveness or idolatry, a certain type of result will always be brought about. We will experience chaos and hurt. We'll have relational friction, depression, entitlement, and separation from the ones we love. And Israel here is consistently sinning against God and against Moses, and they've been given grace, but they aren't seeming to get the memo here, and now the discipline's getting a bit hotter for them. So that's one thing we must remember. There's been a consistency here from Israel. They are repeat offenders, if you will. This is not just an isolated event, okay? And number two, we must remember the character of the one they are sinning against. They are sinning against God. Against God. And God, right, because he is holy and good and true and just, cannot sit idly by as we sin and damage one another and rebel against him. He, like a, like a good parent, must respond to sin with discipline so that they can see the error of the sin, so they can see it. And because God is holy and perfect and just, the penalty against him must match the one we are sinning against. Must match it. If the one we are sinning against is great, then the discipline will be great. All right, for example, hear me out. If you break into my apartment and steal our one TV we got, all right, you steal it, you break in, you commit a crime, you might pay for your crime. You might. The police might, the CPD, doubtful, but they might give some time and energy to find you and bring some form of justice, right? but they probably got bigger fish to fry in Chicago. (laughs) And you might never be brought to justice. And if you are, it won't be nearly as intense as it would be if you broke into the White House and robbed the President of the United States of America. Can I get an amen? It ain't going to be the same. (laughs) In that case, the best investigators and the best police will be on top of it immediately. And once caught, there will be a severity to your crime that far outweighs if you just robbed me. Now, why is that true? Because the president of the United States is deemed as greater and more important than some random pastor living in Chicago that no one's ever heard of. That's why. Right? The breach. The breach is greater because of the object. Does that make sense? The breach is greater because of the object, and therefore the intention and discipline will be greater. And friends, listen, God is so much greater and holier than a human president that is flawed and broken that's here today and gone tomorrow. And therefore, God must deal with sin against him in a way that matches his character and greatness. All right? And this is what the Israelites find out in today's text. They learn that the great God, listen, they learn that the great God that created them 
and the great God that delivered them and the great God that provided miraculously for them is the same great God that also must discipline them for their continuous and consistent sin against him. And since this has been a long line of offense against God by the Israelites since they've been on this journey, God deals with them in a serious manner. Again, he's given them chance after chance and despite his grace and provision, right? God here, in a very real way, has had enough. Listen, God must be just if he is God. He must be just. Death came to Israel because, as the Scripture says, the wages of our sin is death. In other words, the investment sin yields is death. Sin against God is so serious that death is the result of it. This is why death exists today, because sin exists. Death wasn't supposed to be, right? But because we chose to to sin against God, we cease to be immortal. We become flawed and broken. And listen, flawed and broken things don't last forever. This is our human dilemma. And as I read verse 6 here, I, I couldn't help but go back to the Garden of Eden again, to the beginning of the story. Right? In Genesis 2, God tells the first humans that if they disobey him and sin against him, that they will surely die. He let them in on this early in the story. And then in chapter 3, listen, a serpent shows up. Right? A serpent shows up and tempts them to distrust God and disobey God. And this serpent who represented Satan deceives Adam and Eve and they bite the forbidden fruit. They disobey God, and they push past his parameters, and sin and death entered the world in that moment. And now we see here in Numbers 21, God sends fiery serpents, fiery serpents to the Israelites to bite them, (laughs) to those who continue to be deceived by Satan by not trusting God's goodness and sinning against him. And they die from the bite of the serpent once again. These fiery serpents in today's context, in the, in, the, in the text, were actually called seraphim. And these were actually a type of snake that, that were in that region during this time that the scripture was written. And if they bit you, what would happen to you is you would get a raging fever. You'd feel like you were burning up. And then before you die, what would happen to you is that you would have an insatiable thirst. An insatiable thirst. Listen. This is what, you, what, what each of us have today. We have an insatiable thirst still. A thirst, right, for something more, right? Nothing again is ever good enough. It's a thirst that only God can quench here. The Israelites fell in the dust of the desert by a bite from a serpent instead of living in the lush garden of God's promised land. Right? Just like Adam and Eve. They died thirsty. Their journey was supposed to end in the promised land, but they failed to reach it because of their sin and their complaining and their idolatry. And friends, listen, billions and billions of human beings before us have fallen and returned back to dust because our sin nature continues on and we are in that line of people who will surely die and return to the dust. Listen, there is still an insatiable thirst within us because we've all been bitten by the serpent. All right? So, is there any hope for us then, right? Or are we like the Israelites in the desert going to be overtaken by sin and die in the dust? Let's keep reading. 
Look at verses 7 with me. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned and we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Listen, I love the posture of the people here. They, they go to the one they sinned against. They go to the leader that God had given them and they confess their sin, right? They, they own it. They name it. And then they ask Moses to mediate for them. They say, Moses, we know we use our words against you and against God. Would you be gracious to us despite our sin? And will you use your words to pray to God on our behalf? And Moses here, like a good leader, like a good shepherd, Moses opens his heart and he opens his mouth and he prays to God for the people. He does this despite their constant rebellion against him. He maintains a posture of, of grace and forgiveness and he goes before the throne of God for them. Moses knew here that he had a unique access to God as God's chosen instrument. And he used his position to bless and not curse them. To ask God to relent from the discipline and grant a way out for the Israelites once again. Amen? Friends, listen. Would we have the same posture Right? Would we have the same posture toward one another even? When we sin against one another or when we complain or blame shift, will we remember that we have been given grace and forgiven much so that we can give grace and forgive others much? Amen? Will we go to our good Father? Right? We, don't, we don't need Moses to mediate for us anymore. We have one mediator. His name is Jesus. So we have a direct access to the throne of grace. Will we go to our good Father today and approach the throne of grace boldly and, and name our sin and ask him to forgive us. Because look at how God responds in the text. This is how our father responds. Look at verses 8 and 9. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when they see it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, sets it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, they would look at the bronze serpent and live. God's steadfast love here is on full display. God provides a way out once again for the people of Israel. He's been doing this consistently despite their consistent sin. And he does so through this really strange idea. Like we name it, this is a strange idea. Moses makes a bronze serpent and sets it on a pole and then asks the Israelites to look at it so that they will be healed and live. And the first question that came to my mind while I was reading this was, why look to the thing that is killing them? That's strange. Why do look to this bronze serpent, which is a reflection of what was killing them? And here's why. God is saying we must look at our sin and our judgment and recognize it before we are to be healed and given mercy. Okay? Listen, we cannot be saved from something until we know we need rescue. Jesus came later in the story and said, I came for those who know they don't have it together. He says, I didn't come for those who don't think they need a physician. Now, I'm good. I don't need healed. I don't need, I don't need spiritually healed. I got it together. He says, I came for those who know they need a physician. They know they need healed. They're like, yeah, I got sin in my life. That's who Jesus came for, all right? We cannot be saved from something until we know we need rescued from something. We cannot repent of sin until we see the sin and own the sin, Okay? And in this moment, Israel experienced judgment and mercy from the same object. 
as they looked in faith towards this symbol of judgment. This is what this bronze serpent was. It was a symbol of judgment. As they looked in faith towards it, they were given mercy and healed. And listen, what is unique about this is all they had to do was look in faith. All right? There was no penance they had to perform. They didn't need to, like, work their way to figure this out and give someone's money in order to be healed. They just needed to look. They just needed to look, knowing they sinned, knowing they needed help and healing, and trusting God's good word and his healing provision. Amen? And even more, get this. This bronze serpent was a foreshadowing of Jesus, okay? And here's how. The serpent, again, is a symbol of sin and judgment in the story. It was lifted up from the earth and it's put on this wooden pole. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 3.13 that cursed is anyone who is hung up on a tree or a pole. And the serpent here is lifted up and it's cursed. It's cursed. It symbolizes Jesus who would be lifted up, right, would be lifted up on a tree because of the sin of humanity. Jesus would become cursed and he would take on our sin and judgment. And all we have to do is look to Jesus and faith and we will be forgiven and healed. Right? Jesus takes on the justice we deserve as we sin against a holy God. And yet at the same time, he becomes the mercy of God as he takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. Jesus was lifted up. Jesus was lifted up so that others may have life. Jesus was taking on our judgment and at the same time saving us. Jesus' death here becomes a source of life, just like the bronze serpent in the desert. Now, if you um, don't believe the connection I'm trying to make here, right, between the serpent on the pole and Jesus on the cross, and you're like, man, Sam, I think you might be over-spiritualizing that a bit. (laughs) Look at what Jesus himself says in John 3, okay? John 3, Jesus is meeting with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is an educated religious leader within Judaism. They're having a conversation, and Jesus says to him at one point, hey, Nicodemus, you think you're in, but hold up. You can't see the kingdom of God unless you are born again of the Spirit. And Nicodemus gets all confused about this idea of spiritual rebirth. He thinks it's all literal. He gets confused, and he says in John 3, verse 9, how can these things be, Jesus? Jesus has more of a conversation with him, and then he says, Nicodemus, listen, you know the Old Testament. You're an educated religious leader. You're an expert in the Old Testament. You get the Pentateuch. Listen, remember the story of Moses? As Moses, he says to Nicodemus, as Moses was lifted, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must I, the Son of Man, be lifted up that whoever believes in me may have eternal life. Jesus is saying, I just like the serpent that was lifted up so that Israel could be saved, I too will be lifted up on a pole called a cross, and I too will take the judgment of God, and I will hand out the mercy of God to all who look to me and believe. Jesus is saying, I too, I the perfect one, became cursed so that you can be blessed. Jesus is saying, look, I took on your insatiable thirst What's one of the last phrases Jesus mentions on the cross? I thirst. He says, I took on your insatiable thirst and I took on the bite of the serpent for you. And I was lifted up to die on a cross so that the Israelites in the desert and you, Nicodemus, and every single person in this room would not have to pay for their own sin 
but could be made new and have eternal life. Amen? Justice and mercy. Listen, two things every single human being on the planet long for. Justice and mercy. Meet in the person of, in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. They meet there perfectly. God's justice and God's love both occur and he compromises not, neither of them. Neither are compromised because of the work of Jesus. So friends, listen. The disease we all have is sin. And the remedy is Jesus being lifted up on a pole. Amen? Let me just finish today by barring a list that was compiled from a British preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones as well as Tim Keller on the scripture test. Number one, the bronze serpent was God's means of salvation for the Israelites who were bitten by the serpents in the wilderness. Jesus Christ crucified is God's means of salvation for everyone who has been bitten by the deadly venom of sin in the wilderness of this fallen world. Number two, the bronze serpent was a visual representation of the wrath of God against an idolatrous and grumbling and complaining people in the desert. Christ crucified is a visual representation of the wrath of God against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of mankind. Number three, the bronze serpent represented the propitiation of the wrath of God, the turning away of it. Whoever looked at the serpent would know that the wrath of God was turned away from them. The cross of Christ displays the wrath of God as well as the turning away of that wrath at the same time. Mercy and justice meet together at the cross. Righteousness and peace kiss one another in the death of Jesus. Number four, the bronze serpent was meant to remind the Israelites of the cause of their sin. It was meant to carry their minds back to the Garden of Eden where Satan came in the form of a serpent to tempt their first parents. The punishment for their sin brought into the world through the temptation of the serpent of old was laid on Jesus at the cross. The penalty for our sin fell on Jesus. He became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5 says, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Number five, just as looking at a bronze serpent was a foolish means of healing poisoned Israelites. So looking to a crucified Savior is a foolish means to a watching world for the salvation of sinners condemned to death. And number six, the bronze serpent was held up for many for the salvation from the wrath of God and the deadly consequences of sin. Jesus Christ was lifted up for many for the salvation of humanity from the wrath of God and the deadly consequences of sin. Only those who looked, only those who looked at the bronze serpent were saved from the poison of the serpent bites. And listen, only those who look to Jesus on the cross in faith are redeemed from the deadly bite of sin. Amen? So look to Jesus, friends. Look to Jesus. Look and live. As the preacher Charles Spurgeon said, look, look, look. This is the simple method of salvation. And then he quoted Isaiah 45, look unto me, this is God speaking, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth, every single people group, every ethnicity, male or female, look to me all the ends of the earth and you will be saved. Listen, I don't know what you're looking at today to save you. I don't know what you're looking to to save you, to bring you purpose today. 
But as long as we are looking away from the cross of Jesus, we will not be saved. We will remain in our perpetual state of sin and brokenness and death until we look, until we look to the one who was lifted up for our sake. So again, this is the call. This is the action step today. It's one step. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus in faith and live and live forever. Amen? Would you pray with me? Thank you, Jesus. We, we need you. We are a broken, flawed people. We have looked at so many other things to fill us, and we continue to live in the same perpetual state and pattern of sin and brokenness and depression and fear and so many other things. Jesus, will we look to you. Thank you for taking on the justice and handing out mercy for us. No one can do that. We can't do it for ourselves. No other human being can do it for us because we're all in the same predicament, in the same dilemma, with the same disease. Only the perfect God who came down and took on flesh and lived among us and died for us and then rose from the dead from us, for us can do that for us. We love you. We cannot do this without you. May we look today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.